Man, Don's already doing such a great job challenging us, and uh, I think it's just probably going to get more so as we go along here. So this is our session before lunch. Let's welcome Don back. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. All right. Well, so when you see the word creed, we have uh, many different responses to that. The word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which simply means I believe. That's why every line in the Apostles' Creed starts out with, I believe. So that's what creed means, I believe. So we're going to take a look at this and see how this functions. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, I have what I believe uh, uh, is a scripture text that summarizes the creed by which we live. We love because he first loved us. That's where uh, began to dawn on me this theme of love first that God first loved us. So I want to walk you through this just for a few moments. If you'll just very quickly walk with me on this. Revelation 13 and verse 8, along with 1 Peter uh, 1.20, Ephesians chapter 1, the Scriptures teach that Jesus is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. You say, well, how can that be? How can it be true that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Well, God is eternal. God's purposes are eternal. We'll see that in a few minutes. We'll read in Scripture. But if Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, how long has God loved the world? Since before the world was created. So God, being love, God is love, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. God, being love loves the world before he creates the world, and this is vital, that means that the rupture in Genesis 3 did not catch God off guard. It didn't surprise him. For those of you who have more than one child, what if you had one child, you raised that child to the age of 20, and then you have a second child. You would say, you're an idiot. <laughs> you might say something like, you have amnesia. You know, uh, Why? Because if you raised a child to the age of 20, you would know something about the journey of raising children. So you would go into the second child in a different frame of mind. Because God is all-knowing. God knew what humans would be like, what their potential would be like. We're created in God's image. God is not surprised that humans have choice because God made us like himself. God wasn't caught off guard. How many of you uh, made preparation? When you knew if you have children, you knew a child was coming. What was some of the preparation you might have made? Well, some of you may have made healthier choices for your body if you were carrying the child. Some of you might have changed houses, changed apartments. Some of you may have bought a a crib. Or or now in this day and time, the first of your 10 car seats because you keep having to change these dumb things, right? And they cost, they're ridiculously expensive. All I'm trying to say is this. If this is true, which it is, then John 3.16 should take on a different meaning for each one of us. Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. 
God so loved this world that he gave his son. God knew what he was getting into before he ever started it. He knew the rupture would happen. So his plan for restoration predates the need for it. Wow. We should be interested in what has been on God's heart for all eternity. So now as we step forward to this, how many of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed? Are you familiar with this? Okay, good. The Apostles' Creed is actually the first gospel tract. You know that, right? Back in the day before they had uh, the New Testament uh, uh, canon, before they had those books available. And you do realize that in the beginning, books were a wealthy person's privilege. So how are you going to share the gospel? With a tract. This is the first gospel tract. So everything in the Apostles' Creed is either something that Jesus said, did, or something that was said about him. So this is the fundamental core. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Spirit. I believe in the church. I believe in forgiveness and salvation. I believe in life everlasting. How many of you believe in all those things? Why do you believe in all those things? Why do you believe in these things? Well, yeah. And where do you find them? In the Bible. No surprise there. First gospel tract. So you take this out. Most of you know that the Apostles' Creed is the first of three famous creeds. The next one is actually a two-part series, the Nicene Creed. This happens in two stages, but the Nicene Creed fills in some holes that this simpler creed left open for heresy. So they address questions of the identity of Jesus. You believe in Jesus, but who is he? Right? The third creed was written by a guy named Athanasius. Athanasius. It's called the Athanasian Creed. That creed is even more detailed. Four times in the Athanasian Creed, he says, if you believe this, you're right with God, and if you don't believe it, you're going to hell. Four times. How did these creeds function? These creeds told you what was essential to heal the rupture. This is how to get right with God and how God is making the world right. That's what this is about. And those three creeds set the trajectory for what we know today as the Christian message. Now, what I find fascinating is those of you that are familiar with our history in the Restoration Movement, we had something that looked like this, right? No what? No creed with Christ. Now, you do understand that this creed wasn't the problem. They weren't rejecting this creed when they said no creed but Christ. They weren't rejecting that. What were they rejecting? They were rejecting the specificities that divided the body of Christ. So let me give you an example. If you're familiar with the American Restoration Movement, you have four key characters. You have a guy named Thomas Campbell. You have his son, Alexander Campbell. Both of them are from Ireland by way of the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Then you have a guy from uh, the United States, Barton W. Stone. His cousin, David Stone, was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. 
you have Walter Scott, who was the most educated formally of all four of them, went to Edinburgh University in Scotland, comes to the United States, landed in New York, was looking for a job. Someone told him that they were looking for a headmaster of a school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He walked from New York to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He met a man named Forrester who had founded the school. Forrester had been uh, influenced by the Restoration Movement. Forrester baptized Walter Scott. Not long after that, Forrester died. Walter Scott was left in charge of the school. The school is in Pittsburgh, just south of there. It's where the Campbells were. And they got together, and they began to form an alliance. Eventually, as you know, in 1832, Barton Stone uh, is involved in all of that. And we have birthed what we generally call the American Restoration Movement. Most of you are familiar with that history. I just filled in a few gaps. When they said no creed but Christ... That early restoration movement was forward-looking. I want to emphasize this. I started going to the Church of Christ when I was 13 years old. I know our people. I know us. And the way I was taught the restoration was a backward look. I was taught that we're looking back at the first century church, restoring what we see there, not listening to the Corinthian Christians who, if they could come back, would tell us, don't be like us. It was no fun for us, and it would be less fun for you. Have you read our letter? (laughs) Not that we're advocating reading other people's mail, but if you've read our letter, you don't want to be like us. The Galatians would say, did you hear what Paul called us? Foolish, bewitched. But that did not start in the restoration movement till the second and third generation of teachers. That backward look. The first was a forward look. We, they believed with all their heart that they, by unifying the believers from all over, that they were restoring the kingdom, ushering in the kingdom of God. We need to restore the forward view. God never tells us to try to be like someone that was behind us. Other than in that they were trying to restore what God was doing. Right? If we're ever told to look at the example of people behind us, it's not to imitate anything other than what Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Hmm. So the forward look here, no creed but Christ meant, if there's anything that's specified to your group, don't let that divide you from someone else, because that looks like the rupture. So Thomas Campbell was already in America. His son and his family, his son Alexander and his family, boarded a ship to come to America. There was a storm. Their ship was blown toward the coast of Scotland, and it was damaged. So they had to stop off in Scotland. Fortuitously, he traveled inland, went to the University of Glasgow. He was brilliant. In a little over a year's time, he completed three years of work. He was a genius. I think it is fascinating. Uh, I've been to the University of Glasgow. I think this is fascinating. It's the fourth oldest English-speaking university in the world. They were founded in the 1450s. I do think it would be interesting if 40-some years after they were founded, a geography teacher got up and said, oh, by the way, we found a new continent. 
I think that would be interesting if you were a geography teacher. But that's where he went to school. When he got here uh, to America, and they began to formulate what it was going to mean to be a unifying presence. A unifying presence. That was unheard of. But Alexander Campbell got a feel for this when he was living in Scotland. They had a practice where on Thursday of the week prior to Sunday, the members of the congregation would be interviewed in some sects and given a token if they passed the interview, which come Sunday allowed them to take the Lord's Supper. You can research this on your own. This deeply bothered Alexander Campbell. He felt like it wasn't right. And so the last time that tray passed him when he was in Glasgow, he put his token in it, skipped the bread, because he didn't believe it was right. He came, and as you know, he was a Presbyterian pastor in the Pittsburgh area, but he eventually lost that position. You know why? Because he felt like everyone that was there should be served communion. He made the mistake of serving other Presbyterians who were not of his Presbyterian group. He served them communion, and that was the last straw. You heard me correctly. He was a Presbyterian pastor serving other Presbyterians that were not a part of his Presbyterian sect, and that was the last straw. Any of you that have been a part of the Church of Christ for any length of time know that the Presbyterians weren't the only ones that knew how to split hairs. Amen? When I first started going to the Churches of Christ, I was 13 years old. We come in on a Sunday morning, and we were late, and uh, my father and uh, my mom and my sister and me, my brother wasn't with us. They came to give us the Lord's Supper. Well, this is the first time we've ever been in a Church of Christ. And when that little tray came around, uh, they had like a few wafers in it, but there was only three of them, right? So, you know, you're staring at that thing, and you're like, what in the world? We're like right up front because we were late, right? If you're on time, you can take a back row, right? So I stare at it. My dad takes one. My mom takes one. I take one. And that's it. And there's not even enough for us. We don't know what their problem is. Their logistics are messed up, but we hand this guy back the tray. Well, this guy is staring at that tray, and he's staring at us, right? I mean, this is the biggest problem that this deacon's ever faced in his young, young career as a deacon, right? He's got to do something here. So he calls in reinforcements, you know, we have a problem on aisle four, you know, we've got to have more bread, you know. But they solved it. Then they brought around that little juice tray, and I'm thinking they got budget problems because as dry as that cracker is, there's no way this tiny thing is going to wash it down, right? But we got through it, you know. Well, years, years later, I went to uh, uh, Gladewater, Texas, after I became a Christian in 1981. I was a junior at Harding University. I go to Gladewater, Texas with a group of students, and somebody, the guy that baptized me asked me to do the Lord's Supper. I'd never done it before. I'd seen it hundreds, hundreds of times by then, but I'd never actually like, been the guy, right? So there's about 40 people there, and I get up, and I'm shaking, you know, and I've got the, I've got the bread in my hand and the juice, you know. So I say to everybody, you know, bow your head, you know, God, you know, kind of washes over me again. I haven't been a Christian very long, maybe about a month. And I was like, uh, thank you, you know, for dying for us and for the bread, and thank you for your blood that was shed, and, and, and we pray that we'll take it in a manner worthy. You know, you guys know, and uh, amen. So I go over to the first row. I hand them the bread, and the bread heads on down, and then I hand them the juice. Well, it stops dead with the very first person. And it ain't going nowhere. 
And they're looking at me, and then I notice other people are looking at me. Well, I'm looking at her like, I don't have it. It's your issue. You know what to do with this thing, right? But she's not passing it. No one's moving. And then finally, you got it. You got it. She took one out. She said her own prayer and then passed it. And here's what I figured out. See, I should have known this from the beginning. The correct scriptural way to do it is pray, pass, pause, pray, pass. (laughs) All I had done is pray, pass, pass right? And because I didn't pray, pass, pause, pray, pass, see, then they didn't know what to do. Every person, one prayer at a time. You've never seen so much prayer and communion in your life, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm embarrassed. I can't believe I've blown it, you know? I pray, pass, pass, you know? Uh, what you got to do is you got to pray and then uh, pass it and then heaven closes and then it opens again and you pray again and then it closes and then you pass, you know? Well, you do realize churches split over that. Huh. Well, you know what's fascinating? Some churches have been pray pass passing their whole time. And as our church began to flesh itself out as multicultural, some of our folks wondered why we pray pass pause, pray pass. Why don't you just pray pass pass like the church I grew up in? That's what Campbell was talking about. Not the Apostles' Creed, not the Gospel track. He was talking about the specificities that allow us to feel good about excluding others based on what is normative to us. Do I need to say that last phrase again or we catch it on round one? He was against us using specificities that are normative to us to make us feel good about excluding others. Hmm. So what was the story? One of them, an expert in the law, asked him, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Do we know this? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does this sound familiar? This is the Matthew version, right? This is the first and greatest commandment. What does it mean it's the first? Yeah, it's the most important. It's who God has always been and the greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, what could that mean? What could it mean that, let's say, for instance, how many of you remember when you used to hang your clothes out on a line? Any of you remember this? Raise your hand if you remember this, right? If the line doesn't hold, what happens next? Everything's on the ground. Everything, you got to start over. How many of you remember an old ringer washer? My mom still lives on the same farm my great-grandparents started on in back in the late 1800s outside of uh, Grand Junction over Gateway, Colorado. As a kid, that's where I had my first experience with a ringer washer. Now at home in Oregon where we lived, we still put them on a line. Jesus said no matter how many clean commandments you've got, No matter how many of them you nail, if you don't get this right, all of them fall to the ground and they are as dirty as if you were never washed. (coughs) Do we believe him? Well, how many of you have seen a couple of Christians get into it over a commandment and not love each other well but think that they were justified in how the argument played out? 
Well, they say they believe it, but they don't. Because we, either Jesus is right or he's not right. When my dad passed away in 2014, we had two funerals. We had one in Atlanta and one in Grand Junction. One in Grand Junction was packed. A whole bunch of people from the Grand Junction Church of Christ were there for the funeral. This one older guy walked up. He said, you know what I liked about your dad? I said, tell me. He said, he thought Jesus was right about everything. <laughs> well, he really did. He really did. And he really thought he was right about this. If you've got a disagreement with a sister or brother in Christ, and somehow that impedes the warmth of your love toward them, you're off track. You say, well, was he tested? Well, the reason we ended up at a church of Christ is because we started out in the Christian church, and the pastor that baptized my father had a two-and-a-half-year affair with my mother. It was a small church. That causes a lot of problems. My dad had been a Christian a couple of years. He tried to reconcile with the pastor, with the church, and with my mom because he believed Jesus was right about everything. None of them were ready. In that little Christian church, people's hearts were broken. We live in Oregon. If you're familiar with this, there aren't a lot of churches there. We battle it out with Vermont every year for who will be the most unchurched state in the union. They said, there's a church down the road, the Linwood Avenue Church of Christ. We think you'll like it. They don't use instruments. Don't make that too much of that. That's that. Don't, don't, don't make anything of it. And their women don't do as much as they do here, but don't make anything of that. They're loving people. They love the Lord. You're going to love this church. And we went to the Linwood Avenue Church of Christ. That's how I ended up in Churches of Christ. My mom struggled for decades I asked my dad one time after they'd been separated by that time, 20-some years, I said, not that I wanted you to, too, but why didn't she ever divorce mom? By then, she was back on the farm in Colorado, had been for a few decades. He said, you know, I thought about it, but I thought to myself, if I divorced her, it had been for everybody but me. He said, my family and friends wanted me to, but I didn't want to. He said, I still loved her. He said, I couldn't make her love me the way I loved her, but I still loved her. It just wouldn't have done me any good if I had divorced her. He said, I'm not saying everybody ought to do what I did, but I am saying everyone needs to be honest. And if I was honest with myself, that was the truth. Hmm. I said, uh, what's it been like? He said, well, in the beginning, it was so hard. He said, I was just trying to keep the rudder in the water like a boat, keep you kids pointed down the river. He said, you know, your mom needed to know she was worth more than the mistake she made, and I was in a unique place to show her that. In December of 97, or excuse me, in October of 97, we found out he was going to have to have an open-heart surgery. I'll bet some of you have had that. He had to have two artificial valves and a double bypass at the same time. My brother and I were sitting with the cardiologist. She was trained at the Cleveland Clinic. She was a very smart, 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 super smart lady. If we grew up putting water lines and sewer lines in the ground, we we're construction people. So we looked across the table at her and said, if we'd have known we were putting valves in, we'd have done it ourselves. <laughs> she didn't even laugh. She had zero sense of humor. I thought, well, okay, fine. 
My mom called me. She said, are you going from Atlanta to Oregon for your dad's surgery? I said, of course I am. She said, well, I want to come, you know, from Grand Junction. I said, oh, I, I know dad would appreciate that. So I called my sister, and I said, hey, I just want you to know that mom is coming. She said, if mom's coming, I'm not coming. I just can't take that chaos. I said, everyone understands, and dad's recovery is going to be a long time. You come when you feel good about it. I couldn't blame my sister. It was, it was tough, you know. My sister took the brunt of a lot. I called my brother. He's the oldest. I called my brother, and I said, hey, man, I just wanted you to know mom's coming. His quote was fantastic. He said, there is not that much Zantac in the world. <laughs> I said, oh, come on. I said, you know dad will like it. He said, I know. My mom got there. The first day was kind of tough. The next day, you guys have seen this scene. He's on the bed. They're pushing him back. I mean, this is it, right? Everyone's saying their goodbyes. My brother and I back off. My mom and my dad are there. One more time, he looked at her. He said, I love you, Rowena. And something broke in her. You know, it was the Holy Spirit mightily at work. And something broke. She leaned over and she kissed him on the forehead. My brother and I were staring at that like, what just happened? Well, then she looks up and she's crying and she's making our way toward us. And I said to my brother, you're the oldest. This one's on you. <laughs> I said, I'm going to go get the oil changed in her car. Instead of staying four days, she stayed four months. As 1998 continued to unfold, my dad called me. He said, hey, man, I think we've turned a corner. I think your mom and I are going to be back together. I said, what? He said, I'm going to sell the business, and I'm going to move to Colorado. I, oh, no, don't do that, Dad. I said, Dad, what if you get down there and it doesn't last? He said, oh, he said, you can't love people like that. He moved down in the fall of 98 and lived there till he died in 2014. When they had their 50th anniversary, their 50th anniversary, 2005, we all came to Colorado. Now, for some of you younger people, this will make a big, a, a little bit more sense. We rented two cars at the Denver, Denver airport because of the ski industry. SUVs are very expensive. You can get two small cars for less than you can get one SUV. I got a big family, so some of us are in one car, some of us are in the other car. My wife's driving one, I'm driving one. We get to the airport, we head out. At, I'm looking in the rearview mirror. I've got a couple of the kids with me. She's got three of the kids with her. And I see them back there, and they're laughing so hard, I think they're going to drive off the road. And so I call my wife on the cell phone. I said, what's going on back there? She said, when we pull it out of the Denver airport, the radio came on, and the song was a band, ACDC, We're on a Highway to Hell. <laughs> I said, okay, you know, but we got there. It was awesome. At the 50th anniversary, I asked my dad, I said, hey, man, if you're separated for 23 years, does 50 count? He said, in my case, double. Yes, it does. <laughs> but, oh, God, did a great work in my mom. My mom is spectacular. I respect her so much. I love her so much. But I had to get to know a little bit, right, what happened. You see, I never knew what happened. I was 13. I was the youngest when, when this happened with this pastor. I never knew till I was 33 what happened. I knew my mom left. I knew our family was in chaos. I knew we moved churches. But in 1993, I went to Oregon to speak. My mom knew I was going. She called me on the phone. She said, you're going to be in Oregon for a week. I said, I am. She said, I'm going to drive up from Colorado. She said, I called your dad. He said I could stay with him and because uh, I want to see. I said, oh, Mom, I would love that. I was spending time with my brother, and my brother hated Christians, hated the church. I couldn't figure it out. It seemed so strange. 
So on a Tuesday morning, my mom got up and I said, Mom, Larry, my brother, Larry's soul is on the line. I don't understand why he feels this way about Christians. She looked at me. She started crying. She said, well, you know, it all, it all started with the affair. I said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, the affair with Ted Jones. I said, Mom, I don't know what you're talking about. And bear in mind, it had been 20 years earlier, but my dad was never one to confess someone else's sins. He just felt like it was better if I heard it from her when the time was right. A lot of healing started that day because you know what she probably imagined, that all those years when he was with us, that he'd be putting her down, telling that story. He never did. I know that had to influence what happened five years later. Well, my dad passed in 2014, and so uh, my brother and my sister uh, and I, we all go out to the farm. We're all out there to help with things. I'm the mechanic of the family. My brother and I both, but me primarily. We'll make a list of the tobacco and the tractor, and everything's got to be fixed, right? We're going to go out there and take care of all this stuff. My wife told me one day, she said, I know what you're doing. I said, tell me what I'm doing. She said, you're making a list of good things to do so that you don't have to spend time with your mom. I said, you're right. So I decided I'd spend a whole bunch of time with her, like I should, and I did. And a couple of years later, 2016, I was out there, 6.30 in the morning. We'd fed the cows. We're back in for breakfast. There on the table next to me is a one-gallon freezer bag, and inside that one-gallon freezer bag was a folded little booklet, but it was face down. You know, like construction paper from the children's supply room at church, kind of a lavender, but it was faded. My mom said, hand that to me. I handed it to her. She opened it up. She pulled a little booklet out, and I looked at the front of it, and on the front, in her own handwriting, were the words, I sinned and I knew it. And I started flipping the pages, and it told her whole story of how she got caught up in sin and the guilt and the shame that she felt and how the Lord redeemed her life, handwritten stick figures telling the story of her redemption. I held it in my hand, shook. I couldn't believe it. I said, have Larry and Mary seen this, my brother and sister? No. I said, Mom, when did you write this? 1978, five years after the affair. And here we were in 2016. My wife told me, she said, listen. She said, you're not a substitute for your dad's love, but he taught you how to do it. You just have to decide if you want to pay the price. All, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. All of them. All of them. Yes, he was tested. And yes, he believed it. So I want you to think with me for a few moments. This is the oldest papyrus example we have of the Apostles' Creed. I want you to think about this. What do you notice is not in the Creed, the Apostles' Creed? What do you notice is missing? Yeah, isn't that fascinating? It's not mentioned one time. 
I want you to notice this. Do you remember the other two creeds I mentioned, the Nicene Creed and the Athanasius Creed, both of which are longer? Do you realize that the word love isn't even mentioned in either one of them either? I want you to think about that with me. Jesus said what? The greatest command is you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else hangs on these two things. It is first, it is the most important, and when we wrote our creeds, each increasingly specific, the word love is not mentioned in any of them. Not even, not even honorable mention. I didn't know that until I started this research about seven years ago. I didn't even know it. Now, I want you to think of the impact of it. So I reached out uh, to ACU. They have a, like a historical center there for the restoration movement. So I reached out to them and I, some of these historians, and I said, what do you guys think of this? And they said, well, the way it's normally explained is that it's assumed, that love is assumed, that if God created, he loved. If God saved, he loved. It's assumed. But what we all came to the agreement on is that Christians don't live according to those assumptions. We live by the letter. So watch this. How does it play out? You guys are familiar with the Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 1648. It is the worst religious conflict in history. If you, if you read history, this is considered number one worst religious conflict in history. It took place on the continent of Europe. Uh, here's a little, uh, some pictures of it. This is a hanging tree. This is a lithograph of the Thirty Years' War. Those are people. Those are people. This is another famous painting of the Thirty Years' War. This is another painting of the Thirty Years' War. This is another painting of the Thirty Years' War. And here's what you need to know. There were eight million deaths, combatants and civilians. There was no conclusive outcome, no decisive victory. The peace of Westphalia isn't a commitment to love your neighbor enemy. It's just a recognition that there was too much killing. It's too costly. Look at the last one. All of the combatants quoted the creed, all of them. These were all European nations, all of them, every Sunday, quoted the creed. Every single Sunday. I wonder if the fact that love is never mentioned could help us understand how you can quote the creed on Sunday and go out Monday and kill other creed-quoting Christians and feel like you're doing God's will. Hmm. Here's three books that are interesting. Sanctuaries of Segregation, Mississippi Praying, and Ed King's Mississippi. These three books all, with extreme detail, recount the history of churches in the South, who so constructed their creed of the gospel and the mission of God that they could, by their creed, teach that they did not need to share their sanctuary with people of another color. I want you to think about that. In the center book, Mississippi Praying, as well in the far right one, Ed King's Mississippi, 
they document a story that happened in 1964 where two bishops of the Methodist church, one black, one white, went together to visit the largest Methodist church in Jackson, Mississippi, Galloway Memorial Methodist Church. They went to visit this church. That's it up on the right-hand side. They went to visit this church, and they were turned away at the door, though both of them were bishops in the Methodist church. This guy in the middle is Ed King. That's Aaron Henry on the right in the same picture in the middle. Up there on the left is Ed King. See there up there on the left? That's a lunch counter sit-in at Woolworths. He was there as a minister ministering to these students, white and black, that were advocating for civil rights. On the bottom left-hand picture, all he was arrested for in that picture was praying on the courthouse steps. That's what he was arrested for. When they beat him, you'll notice in the picture on the right in his 80s, he still bears the scars of the beating he took for standing for shared sanctuaries in the church in 1964. And I don't have this gray hair for nothing. Many of us were alive in 1964. This isn't that long ago. It so shaped the trajectory of churches that all over the country we have 330,000 churches that proclaim that they have some affiliation with Christ and 86% of them still say what? You see how the rupture is playing out? Do you see this man still bared the marks of the rupture till the day he died. But you know what those, remark, those marks said to other people? Those were marks of restoration. He bore scars of restoration. He never stopped loving. What's really fascinating is that in his elderly years, he even went and made a prison visit to the person that assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. He said, God loves bigots. And I will love them too. The very ones that disfigured his face. What do you make of that? You see, when I encounter these stories, you remember this famous story? I wish that more more. Uh, 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 context was given to this. So I'm going to give the context here this morning. The first recorded time that King uh, gave this was uh, in a speech he was giving in Wisconsin, and it wasn't even a part of his regular speech. It was a part of a question and answer that happened afterward is the first time he made this famous statement. We must face the sad fact that the 11 o'clock on Sunday morning uh, when we stand to sing, in Christ there is no east or west, we stand in the most segregated hour in America. How many of you are kind of familiar with that famous phrase? Okay, but here's the rest of it. It's appalling that most segregated hour of Christian America is the 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Nobody of honesty can overlook this. He kept talking after the famous quote. No, I'm sure that if the church had taken a stronger stand all along, we wouldn't have many of the problems that we have. Now, how many of you can agree with that? Right? So he said, the first way that the church can repent, which is the assumption that the church should repent, right? Is the first way that it can, is it can move, that, uh, the first way that it can move out of the arena of, of social reform is to 
or move out into the arena of social reform is to remove the yoke of segregation from its own body. Now, I'm not saying that society must sit down and wait on a spiritual and more abundant church, as we've seen so often. I think it should have started with the church, but since it didn't start with the church, our society needed to move on. Now, I'll tell you, the first time I read that, you can imagine as a minister how that stung. You can imagine how that hurt. But I had to stop and take it in, right? If the church had, you know, got on the ball, it could have been different, but the church wasn't on the ball, so it wasn't different. But what about now? What about these exciting times? He wrote a famous letter from the Birmingham jail, and uh, there's a wonderful church in Birmingham that is doing great work in this way. When I first uh, started meeting with this church four years ago, and we spent time with this church over the last four years, I was just there a few um, months ago, and this church is making great, 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 great headway in this area. But at one of the meetings, uh, with just the elders and their wives, the ministers, their spouses, uh, my wife and I, a couple of other ministers from our church, a couple of elders, uh, we were about to finish the meeting, and one of the elders, the oldest elder, he said, could I have a word? Okay. And he's in his early 80s. He's a very young, early 80-year-old, but he's in his early 80s. He said, I would like to say a word, and I want to share this word with all of you. He said, when I was a young elder, I voted to not allow blacks to come to our church. This isn't just about the future for me. It is about making something right that I made wrong. He, he you know, he wasn't like crying. He had tears. But man, I couldn't shake it. You know, the courage of, of, a, of you know, that man, right? Because he's old enough that a lot of that would be buried. You know what I mean? You, you know what I mean by that? Like buried in history. Very, who would know that? But when he shared it, I thought, I'll, I'll never forget that. Not just what he did and how he's doing it, but that he confessed it and said, man, I'm a part of this. So as we get ready to go to lunch, I want to go back to the magazine article that I told you about that the elder's wife gave me. Remember that when she told me, you go figure out what's wrong and I didn't tell you what was wrong, right? So the article, this is back in 1998, this lady wrote this article and she was talking about how important it was to be colorblind and that we need a colorblind society. We just need a colorblind society. And I thought to myself, well, that sounds terrific. And I came back and I told her that. And she said, it's terrible. And I said, it is? And she said, it is. Remember, I told you this. And so I went back and I read it again. And I came back and I said, it is terrible. And she said, why? And I said, because inherent in colorblind says that if I see your color, it will go badly. Inherent and colorblind says, I have to know you less to love you more. Inherent and colorblind says, I should not notice all of you. Inherent and colorblind says, I don't see you. Hmm. So what would God do? Well, God says, how did I make it? I made it colorful. You think that was an accident? Have you read my book? I was all about it. 
He said, in fact, when I got done making things, I stepped back and said, man, that was good. He said, and it's in the book. We're not making it up. You ever read my Bible? I mean, you know, I said things like that. So when I put all the color in, I liked it. Why don't you? Why don't you? Why don't you see me and my image reflected in what I made, the way I love it? Why won't you be a church that's colorful and color-blessed rather than color-blind? Gentlemen, I have never once said to my wife, baby, if this thing's going to work, i got to be gender-blind. I'm just, I'm just going to have to be gender-blind. Otherwise, you say, this thing just will never work. Right? No. I'm thankful that God made us different. Not to notice it less, but to what? Notice it more. I've never walked through a rose garden and thought, oh, I wish they were all just shades of gray. Hmm. Colorful and color-blessed. Wow. You know, it's good to have the creed. Could we stand together? You know that the first creed, everything that was in the Apostles' Creed, is either something Jesus said, something that he did, or something that was said about him. So what we're going to do first is we're going to go through the creed, and we're going to make sure that everything in here is biblical. Right? Okay, so look at it. I believe God is love, right? 1 John 4, 7 and 8, so we know that. I believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right, John three sixteen. good. Uh, I believe, this one's a little trickier, but I think we, we got it. Uh, I believe God loves me, powerless, ungodly, sinner, and enemy. You remember where he said that? Romans chapter 5, right. Romans chapter 5, where he said uh, 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 that, uh, that God loved the world when we were powerless and ungodly, a sinner and an enemy. I believe that the first and greatest command is to love God with all I am. Of course, that's in several places we've already looked at. I believe I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. You remember this next one, I must love my enemies? I believe we must love Remember Jesus said that. Remember that in the Sermon on the Mount? You guys remember this? Whew. Uh, Lynn Anderson said one time, that's the second hardest commandment after do not worry. <laughs> he did say that. I thought that was brilliant. Um, here's a couple more that are embedded in 1 John. I believe that if I claim to love God but do not love others, I am a liar. I believe that. And the truth isn't in me. That's in 1 John. You remember that? First, yeah, okay. And then this next one's also in 1 John. I believe that when I see my brothers and sisters in need, I must help them with my material position so the love of God is not in me. So everything up there is in Scripture, right? So we feel good about believing things that are in Scripture. So let's say this together, and then Matt, will, I'll turn it over to you. Ready, everyone? I believe God is love. I believe God so loved the world, he gave his son. I believe God loves me, powerless, ungodly, sinner, enemy. I believe that the first and greatest command is to love God with all that I am. And I believe I'm to love my neighbor as myself. I believe I must love my enemies. I believe if I claim to love God but do not love others, I am a liar. And the truth is not in me. I believe that when I see my brothers and sisters in need, I must help them with my material possessions or the love of God is not in me. Here's my question to you. Had those churches been reciting the Apostles' Creed and the Love First Creed for 30 years, 
would the worst religious war in history be one among Christians? Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.